Blue Wire. To the end zone he goes. Where Sammy is. Boyd with a great fake. Touchdown, Taj. Hopkins throws to Boyd. Lean means touchdown throwing machine tonight, and he's got another one. Boyd. Welcome back to the Todd Boy Podcast. Hope all is going well your way. But nonetheless, I'm excited for you guys to listen to this podcast today. Now, this guy that I have on, you can catch him every morning on ESPN on Golik and Wingo. So I'm bringing you Mike Golik Jr. Now, this guy has a little bit of insight on everything. And that's what we tap into. We talk about the NIL agreement. We talk about the college football playoffs. We tap into some of his personal beliefs and philosophy uh, that he carries with him on his day-to-day. But more importantly, I think we have some very, very good uh, conversations, some dialogue that you can listen to when you're in your drive or whether you're jogging or while you're just sitting at home and you're bored. So hope this entertains you as much as it has for me. Um, can't wait for you guys to listen. Here we go. For all the people, you, you probably heard the intro already, but I got my main man here with me. Superstar, you can see him every morning on Golik and Wingo. Mike Jr., welcome to the Taj Boy Podcast, buddy. Appreciate you having me, man. It's uh, it's nice to catch up. I see you around every once in a while now. I mean, it's the the sports media business and the world around football is always pretty small, but it's always good to catch up, man. Always, man. You know, we got some some predated history. You know, know the family a little bit. No, Jake. How's my man Jake doing? He's doing all right. He's doing well, man. He's doing well. Him and he's got a got a wife. He's got a dog. He's you know he owns a couple of Orange Theory fitnesses, so he's doing well, man. Really, really? Man, so look, those Orange Theories. I was a member for about a year, and I actually think they make a lot of sense if you're going to go ahead and go for a bare minimum eighteen, nineteen uh, classes a month. You know, but I started to slim it down to about five or six, and I was like, you know what? The price point isn't justifying itself. Plus, we know how to work out. Now, if you've never worked out before and need an extra push, man, Orange Theory is the way to go. Exactly. And for, for me, it just get me back on the treadmill, man. Like, that's the hardest part, like you said, is I, I know the things I need to do working out. And I know, especially as a reformed big guy, that trying to get more of the weight off is going to take some cardio. And it just, I need someone to get me on there every once in a while. So that helps a little yeah. bit. Hey, look, you was inked up too. So <laughs> you got to keep adding them tattoos. Now, you might be the first personality i've ever seen that have has a full sleeve you know i don't think i've ever seen that too much up there yeah you know it's interesting like i i always i always knew like going back to when i was a kid you know i, I watched my dad do what he did in, in media whether it was television or radio and i always kind of knew that was what i wanted to do whenever football was over and i always knew like back then as a kid that grew up in the 90s and early 2000s like yeah. all right you knew it was kind of taboo to have tattoos on, on tv and people really frowned upon that and then I got up there and I went through college football and, you know, you've been in plenty of locker rooms, like people get tattoos. It happens a lot. And so I started getting tattoos and really liking it. And when I got done, I was like, man, I got these two half sleeves. I really want to knock this all the way down. And so I figured, you know what, if I'm going to be doing TV that requires me to wear a suit, it'll be down covering what will be going down my arm anyway. And if not, you know, hopefully we're just getting to a time where People will accept it. And sure enough, myself and this guy, Jason Fitz, that works for us at ESPN, he is a yeah. former country musician. He's another one, full sleeve tattoos. And it's gotten to the point now where shows like Outside the Lines, the producers are asking him, hey, would you wear something that will show off the tattoos? We want people to see more personality. So it, it's a real kind of testament to how far things have come in the landscape. 
I love that right there, man. And uh, I do appreciate you guys having me on uh, in Santa Clara for the national championship game. It was a pretty lit segment. So I got a chance to meet Fitz there, obviously. been seeing him continue to ascend in the broadcasting space, man, he's done a fantastic job. So uh, I think you guys are I think you guys are all doing a great job, man, of, of being yourself and being comfortable. And I think that's, um, you know, at least from that standpoint, from a media uh, standpoint, one of the things I think that I'm, I'm, I'm loving is seeing people uh, that project like true authenticity. You know, you see the Pat McAfee's, you see you, you see Jason Fitz, um, Jalen Rose even. And, you know, so many times like, you know, you, you look at it and you watch it on TV and you think that you have to be a certain way in order to be in that position. And I think now we're at a spot uh, culturally where people don't want that. They want you to be you and they want you to, to talk how you talk and dress how you dress and still be able to deliver solid content. That's what you guys are doing, so that's awesome. No, it, you know, it, it really is a cool thing because you're right. Like We grew up in a time where like people still watch the news a lot, right? And everyone had to have that kind of newscaster voice and everything was very starchy and very stiff and, and, and all of that stuff. And as it's gone along, I think the internet's helped that. Like We just get so much content now that it's kind of like it is with sports talk radio where – if you're not yourself, eventually people are going to find you out. Like there's too much time and there's too much talking, but seeing people like, I know for me, it really clicked in seeing people like Marty Smith with us or, uh, or Marcus, uh, Marcus uh, Spears guys who have these big, deep country Southern draws and they just go on and they are completely themselves and people love it. Like people respond, like you said, amazing surprise, surprise people respond when you are being yourself and they want to see different and they want to see people that might look a little bit more like them or a little bit different than what the norm is. So it's pretty cool. Have you, uh, and you're in Connecticut right now. Um, you also went to high school out there cause I want to, I want to bring it back a little bit to, you know, your childhood, obviously you got a chance to see your dad play, uh, in the league, man. And, and grew up around that. So, you know, was it to the point because we're getting to this space now in football where I get asked about every week, um, at least eight, nine times, should my kid play football? Uh, was there any time where your dad tried to steer you away from that or was it always just welcomed when you said, Hey, I want to strap up the pads and get ready to go. Uh, you know what? My dad was always very honest with us. Like he, he gave us the same talk that his dad gave them, which is listen, if you want to play football and we, we were encouraged to play all sports when we were growing up as a, as a way to make friends, as a way to meet people, but just try everything out and find out what you like. And when we decided that we wanted to play football, my dad sat me and my brother down because you know my brother's a year younger than me. So we were going to get started playing around the same time. And he said, all right, listen, like football is a very tough, violent game. And if you play this as long as both of you say you want to play it, you're probably not going to walk out of it whole in one way or another. And I know my dad's a guy that had a bunch of surgeries and we'd all known about that. And so it was one of those things where he said, you you know the risks going into it. I'm always going to be up front with you about that. But the minute you show interest in something, and that's how my dad and mom both were, the minute we, me or my brother or my sister showed interest in something, they were going to back it 100% and they were going to put the full weight of their resources behind whatever we wanted to do and support it as much as they could. <laughs> and obviously you play guard, man, and you probably play a little bit of everything, center, tackle. You know, every lineman in the history of sports forever has always said that they were a quarterback or a running back. Now, did you get a chance to play in the other positions growing up? Nope. I was one of those rare kids that I was always uh, a little bit, we'll call it, my mom would call it husky. I was a big little kid that needed to get out some of that aggression. So I was one of the rare ones that played offensive line and defensive line from the time I strapped it up in Pop Warner until the time I called it quits. 
<laughs> All right, you went to West Hartford uh, as a Catholic. Yeah, Norfolk Catholic in West Hartford, yep. Pretty competitive league. Uh, you know what? Not overly. Like Central Connecticut High School football really isn't much to write home about. You know, if you're – Connecticut probably has, I'd say, between 8 and 12 kids that are legitimate Division One prospects every year. And the vast majority are in the southern part of the state. But it, it, when I got there, we were pretty good. We had a league where we played up. You know, we were uh, a smaller division in the state, but we played up in our conference against a lot of bigger yeah. schools and – you know, we won our conference every year I was there. We made the state playoffs three out of the four years there. We never ended up winning a state title. But we had we had good teams with a lot of kids that were going to go and play, you know, Division II football, NAIA football that were tough blue-collar kids that, that you know, played their asses off and stuff like that. But we, we weren't some powerhouse by no means. <laughs> and I really wanted to tap into that too. So, you know, I, I grew up in Virginia. Um, I obviously played football in that southeast my whole life. And there's always this notion – uh, of football that's played up north like you get these tough gritty kids that look like they're from southie in boston and you know have this whole edge to them uh, i don't know if you've ever seen a movie with uh tom cruise called all the right moves all right and he played at the school called east and pipe so either you play football or you worked in the steel mills your coach in, in high school because I'm, I'm i love culture i love talking about the development of of coaches into players and what that looks like going forward in their life what kind of man was he and what kind of values did he instill in you that was different than what your dad said? Or were they pretty much synonymous on that tip? They were they were pretty consistent. So my high school football coach is a man named Mike Tyler, who actually – so we were at Northwest Catholic where Mike was the head coach, and he had actually been the defensive line coach at a high school about 20 minutes from where we were called Bloomfield High School. And while he was there, he coached a guy on the defensive line named Dwight Freeney, who is a Connecticut native who ended up going – and doing some pretty spectacular things that we all know and saw. So, you know, coach had been around. He, you know, he had gone and my coach had played at uh, Syracuse when he was in college for a little while. And so had that same background and kind of understood the places I want to go from a couple of different vantage points. But he was a, a pretty no nonsense, extremely blue collar, had been at the school for a while, you know, was a, a it, it's a school where uh, there's a lot of legacies. There's a lot of second and third generations of families going through. And the value in that area was always you were going to come in and, and work hard and there was going to be no substitute for it. He was the guidance counselor at our school. So certainly you were going to take care of academics as well. And that was going to be a priority. But, you know, we were a, we were a small team. Like we were a 650-person co-ed Catholic school. So there weren't a lot of bodies. So everybody played two ways, you know. By the end of practice, we didn't have lights at the field or anything like that. So by the end of practice, our coaches were using the headlights of their cars to make sure that we had enough light to finish up whatever period that we were on at that point. And, and it wasn't a it wasn't a school that had extraordinary means, but it had a lot of people that really cared about it. And I think that always shined through this, that ability to to find a way to get it done, no matter what we were dealing with. Well, and, you know, from there. Uh, you played in the Army All-American game, so you were All-American in high school. Uh, obviously, we know that. And then you go to Notre Dame. And, you know, your your family has some some history uh, with that space. Obviously, your dad went there. Your brother played there as well. Your brother played at Cincinnati. But, you know, you guys have some Notre Dame lore in there. And I think Jake told me about the Rudy story, and we'll get back there in a little <laughs> bit. But did you ever consider going anywhere else outside of Notre Dame, or was that just in your blood and you knew 
that you wanted to be a fighting Irish. So my dad also sat us down before recruiting and said, you make the decision that you want to make and you go where you guys want to go. We'll support it 100%. You know, blood is thicker than any allegiance to a school. The difficulty was is we had basically been swaddled in blue and gold. And if you walked around our house when we were a kid, you would see an embarrassing amount of Notre Dame rugs and things hung up on the wall. So they did a good job, my mom and dad, of the subliminal messaging and all that. So I, I always wanted to go to Notre Dame. I was going to two Notre Dame home games a year from the time I was in fourth grade on. I would go to their camp every summer when I was younger. And, and so I'd always wanted to go there, but I never took for granted that that was just going to be there. And so I went around and took visits to other places. You know, as a local kid, my first offer was UConn. I went and visited Florida when Urban Meyer was there, and I was set up to do all of the, you know, and you know this, the junior day visits that you start taking yeah. in the early in the winter of your junior year. I was set up to take all of those, and then I got the call and got the offer from Notre Dame, and I committed on the spot. I was the first commit in my class, just like my brother was, and, and from there it never really wavered, and, and it was – pretty clear that when the offer was there that was where I always wanted to be but you, you kind of have to go through the rest of the process because I knew above all else I wanted to play college football and no matter where that was if Notre Dame wasn't an option yeah and you committed to Charlie Weiss is that right yep now what was because I always wanted to know what Charlie Weiss's pitch was you know was he one of those guys that just sat back in his chair and was like hey I don't need to tell you anything else but you put on his uniform and it means everything or was he like look you know, this is what we're trying to build. This is what we're trying to do. Because you you got there kind of on the back end of his tenure. Um, so could you sense it? Did you believe that he was going to be there for the long haul? Or did you kind of know that he was on the way out anyways? No, no, we believed it. You know, the one thing Charlie Weiss never lacked is confidence. Charlie is a Jersey guy through and through. Charlie is brutally honest. Charlie is also a genius. Like Charlie was a legitimate 1600 on his SAT. He was a Notre Dame student himself back in the 70s when, you know, they were winning championships and life was good there. So Charlie was a guy who Notre Dame was in his blood too. And this place meant a lot to him. And you could sense that talking to him is he he lived all the parts of it. He said, you know, you're going to come here and get a world-class education. At that point, you know, early in his tenure when Brady Quinn and all those guys years, they'd had a lot of success on the field. And so all of those things were still a part of his pitch. And listen, Charlie also won some Super Bowls with the Patriots. So you got to see the Super Bowl rings as a part of his pitch every time. He was no stranger to that. And that was, you know, just the, the confidence that Charlie brought to every interaction he was in was – he was, he was incredibly bright. He had been a part of incredibly successful teams, and he had no you know, loss of confidence for himself at any point now. And then you get Brian Kelly, who is literally a walking meme out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but I do love him. All right, so I got this quick story for you, man. Um, they play, obviously played Notre Dame last year uh, in Dallas. Uh, Clemson did. And – Coach Sweeney and Brian Kelly are having this presser, you know, pregame kind of deal where they're getting all the fans engaged and all the donors and everything else of that nature. And I caught like a last minute flight um, on this little jet, you know, and I'm like, all right, what am I going to wear? We're going into Dallas, man. Like I want to look Texan for whatever reason. (laughs) And I go full on in my mind what Matthew McConaughey would wear. I got this tight ass jean jacket on super tight nut hugger jeans, man. (laughs) the python cowboy boots and i feel like i'm ready to go you know i'm like man, i'm built for this all i need is a hat and we're sound and we pull into dallas love go straight to the facility i'm supposed to like throw out the football to like these these fans that have raffled or whatever whatever and i walk in there 
and everybody had on like loose fitting sweatpants and shorts. And I felt like a clown, bro. And I'm taking pictures. I'm like grabbing my crotch, like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I got this outfit on. I changed as quickly as I could. But no, I got a chance to uh actually am a big fan of Brian Kelly. And, you know, I, I think that he he's what's right about college football. I think he's what's right about being a mentor and a leader to these kids as they transition, you know, outside of football. And um, you know, I just want to know what it was like being with him in the locker room on and off the field as well. Yeah, I think what, what Brian always did really well was he understood all of the different hats that you had to wear, especially as the head coach at Notre Dame. And, and you know, he had come and had a ton of success at Grand Valley, at Central Michigan, at Cincinnati, but at Notre Dame because of the rich academic history and because of you know the, the high-profile nature of the school and how prevalent the donors and the supporters and the alumni are, you have to wear a lot of hats. And I thought Brian came in pretty much right away and understood – you know, not just, all right, I'm here to coach football, but I've really got to be the CEO of this place. And I think him and our athletic director, Drax Swarbuck, have really done a good job. I mean, listen, navigating the transition from the BCS to the college football playoff era for a school that's an independent is no tall task. And so you mentioned being down in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl last year to play in that playoff game was was a big moment for a school that you know, as much as you have confidence in Notre Dame and, and what it means to the college football landscape – it's 2019. It's not how it was when we were the only show in town on NBC on Saturdays and the only show that most people got to see. And so to, to get to that point, I think, is a testament to both of their commitments to grow this program, to, to give the facilities and the things around it what it needed, in addition to the football and the high level of coaching and the recruiting and all of those things that are that are still such a big part of it, but that that sort of whole picture approach to it by Brian and really by Jack has, has, I think, been what's helped Notre Dame navigate that transition as well as it has. Yeah, you know, obviously speaking of those guys being independent, and I think in general in the ACC in every sport but football, what is the biggest reason that they has that they haven't necessarily joined uh, the Atlantic Coast Conference? Do you know anything on that side of it? Can you see it from, from, from how we see it uh, as teams that are in ACC, or do you think they're good where they're at? Um, I, I think they're good. You know, I, the way I always try to explain it to people is if you didn't, if you didn't have to, you wouldn't either, right? Like if anyone, if everyone had the option to stay and certainly financially, there's the benefits to it, but also for Notre Dame, the way that they can schedule what it allows them to do as a national brand, there's all these benefits to it. And as a team that, you know, made it to the playoff last year that a couple years before was 10 and 1 or 11 and 1 going in the last game of the season and knocking on the door of it then and so has been close around the conversation the advantages of it on the football side really aren't there yet versus the downside of all right well now we've got to factor in other teams when we're negotiating television rights and now all the money's in a pot it's not just us dealing on our own and so i think that ability to have that autonomy right now while still you know, being able to be involved in the playoff when they're competitive and when the record's right is is not going to change until that situation changes. Definitely understandable. Um, I, you know, I just I need them to come in just so we can get that strength of schedule up a little bit, you know, because I'm not going to sit here. I'm not one of these guys that says that Clemson doesn't play cupcakes. I understand that. And I, I get what people are coming from from that standpoint. But the one thing I always go back when you look at Clemson and how they perform, uh, the players that they have on site and the staff that they've accumulated, 
is that regardless of the situation, they still got to go out there and play the game. So either they're going to play down to a level or they're going to play at their particular standard. And for me, that's what they've been doing. They've been playing at their standard for a while now. So to try to factor in what's happening within conference, to me, doesn't validate any real argument about why Clemson should be be less deserving of being ranked higher than some just because they play a quote-unquote a competitive schedule. Oh, that, that makes sense. that's the difficulty of of modern college football in general is it, you look like I, people have pointed this out as the season wore on and we all kind of got over the North Carolina game and that being a shock yeah. to everyone's system was, you know what, Clemson, you look at their out-of-conference schedule, obviously South Carolina is a rivalry game, but between that and Texas A&M, their out-of-conference schedule was scheduling two teams from what most people consider the best conference in college football. They couldn't right. control when the schedule was made that they just happened to have down seasons. They weren't the teams that on paper, when you look at that matchup five, six, seven years ago, when all these schedules get made, they were supposed to be. And the same goes for the conference. You know, conference strength top to bottom waxes and wanes. There were good teams in the ACC, but a lot like what we've seen happen in the Pac-12 is you cannibalize yourself enough a little bit and falter and one or two out-of-conference matchups, and people kind of get their minds made up about this stuff. So I'm with you. A lot of that was out of Clemson's control. And, hell, I mean, then you go out and, all right, if we're playing teams that aren't as good as us, but we're beating them by 45 every time, we're showing you we're that much better than all the competition. So they've proven it on the big stage. Like, Clemson's got nothing left to prove. It's just it was one of those quirky years where because of that North Carolina game, I think people kind of made their minds up and then stopped looking at Clemson because they didn't have another ranked game for people to pay attention to. And that makes a lot of sense. And, and the one thing I'll go back to uh, talking about SEC ball is like, look, man, growing up, you know, it was always kind of this uh, the, the stigma that SEC ball is the best ball. Do we really know that for the given? Not really. But that was what I was told and that's what I was taught. And, and that was kind of the idea so I committed to Philip Fulmer in Tennessee, and they had just got beat by like 35 by Alabama. But regardless, Tennessee wore that SEC patch, and that's where I wanted to play ball at. And when you look at the preseason rankings, now obviously there's got to be preseason rankings. There's something that has to take shape in order to make it make sense. But the issue for me is like we don't really know how good any of these teams are when the season starts. So to warrant and say that some wins are bigger than the other just because of what the preseason rankings look like, to me, is one of the issues. Like we had, what this year in the top fourteen, there was like six SEC teams in there. Now somebody's got to be in them, but again, are they are they quality teams? We don't know that yet. We'll know mid season to late, but early on, it just looks like really, really, really big victories. And that was one of the questions that I asked Aaron Murray was how good is Georgia and how good is Notre Dame because we don't know that yet. It's early in the season. I know what Notre Dame did last year, and I know what Clemson did to Notre Dame. Now, can they continue to build on it and, and try to gain some more, some some more depth? And can they can they continue to perform at a high level outside of that? That's something that we didn't know. But my issue with the SEC is them saying that the SEC ball is better than everybody else's because of where everybody's ranked at when the season starts. And I'm like, I still don't, I still don't understand that, and I don't know that, and nobody knows that. So the fact that Paul Feinbaum makes a living off of that is understandable. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, come on, man, what are we really talking about here? Well, and I, I think that's a good point is obviously the majority of the reason for preseason rankings because we got to get people to watch all these games that we're putting on TV, right? Like there is yeah. part of that we're having 
the ability to put the number next to the matchup, especially on opening weekend, is something that definitely matters in all of this. But that that is interesting to me because it's the most inexact part of the science. Like even when we look at the playoff committee now, I go, all right, well, how do we judge a ranked win? Like for LSU, do you still get credit for beating Texas? Because they we thought they were good earlier in the season, but then they start to kind of bottom out. Obviously, LSU proved it in a number of other fashions who and what they were, but it it is just little things like that. But uh, it is interesting. I mean, for me to ask you, like as a conference guy, because I don't have this experience, is that something that you guys talk about a fair amount is the idea of like one conference versus another, especially because you're inside one in the ACC that takes a fair amount of heat? Unfortunately, man, I'm I'm just not one of those guys that had like all of this conference pride when I played. You know, when I I stepped on that field, it was really for, you know, one, that Tiger Paul on the helmet and on the front of that jersey. And then second was the name on the back of it. And I felt like everything else was, you know, just kind of a reactive necessary, uh, if that makes sense. But, I mean, yeah, like when you see when you see the ACC having 10 teams in a, in a bowl season, like that's, that's pretty cool because you're like, you know what? There is some consistency within conference. And the only difference is that they're not competitive with Clemson, but they're still competitive within the conference itself. So I think, again, that just shows how elite Clemson is. But I think you said the same for other conferences as well. I think that the Big 12 was top heavy. I think the SEC is top heavy. I think Big 10 was the most competitive conference all season long. And I think that the ACC is obviously top heavy. So for me, the Big 10 was the best conference, bar none, from week in to week out and how they had to prepare and step up and be ready to play. Um, but that's just what we're getting right now. Man. And then the tough part is, is when you look at this playoff and where it stands for four teams – is that all of these guys, and we're seeing more and more, obviously, with the transfer portal, but what we're seeing is all of these top recruits going to these same teams, the ones that are competitive for postseason play and not just bowl games. I never thought we'll get to a point where bowl games didn't matter because I love the game so much, man. I, I love I love participating. I love practicing on JV if I'm not a starter. I love getting extra reps, but it seems now that the game is transitioned to the point where either you're a contender and you play your ass off, or you don't, and you go home. Like, and it's just it's wild that we would ever get to this point, but I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah, well, it is interesting. Like, I, and I thought this year because every year we've had more and more kids sit out bowl games, and, and yeah. from a pure empathy standpoint, like it's hard for me to tell a kid who sees a multi-million dollar contract on the other side, especially because I watched Jalen Smith firsthand, you know, Notre Dame linebacker. I was at the Fiesta Bowl game where he tore his knee up on a late hit in that game and watched him plummet from a top 10 pick to a second round contract. And I get it. You know, he signed it. He signed a new deal. He signed it. He got to that second contract, but he's never going to get those millions of dollars back because Mm -hmm. of that one game. And so that's the, that's the difficult part for me, but this year has been interesting. Like I saw Phil Steele was starting to, uh, to announce guys that were, you know, announcing they were still playing, like Jerry Judy at Alabama, last year's Bolitnikoff winner said he's going to play in their bowl game. Derek Brown, who's going to be one of the top two defensive tackles coming off the board this spring, has said he's going to play in their bowl game. So there's there's some guys kind of pushing back against that idea of what we thought. Well, and I would hope so, you know, because what do you do summer workouts for? Why do you go through winter workouts? Why do you go to study hall with your guys and put the work in? Like, it's not just about the end product. It's about everything that happens in between that. And, you know, when you, when you stop respecting that process, when you stop seeing these teams perform at a high level. So when you have that, that, that mutual appreciation and that respect for that guy beside you, it would be hard for me as a competitor and as a teammate to look my guy in the eye and say, Hey, 
good luck without me, man, because I'm sitting out. I'm going straight to training. But that's just that's just me. And I think what we'll see is these teams who have built some sort of culture, who have sustained some success there, have these guys do that because they understand that it is bigger than just the individual player himself. It's we, not me. And I, I love when I see top guys do that because, to me, it seems like that's going to be less of the norm than it would be historically. Yeah, I, I think it is a good reminder, though, like you said, like the way that you're wired, the way that I think we're both wired is is much more the norm than we give it credit for. Like I always say with with guys and especially because I had plenty of guys that transfer when I was at Notre Dame, guys that, you know, you know, had the opportunity to go that played like our general M.O. because of all that work, because from the time that we were kids in fourth and fifth grade, whenever everyone started playing football, that's what you did. That's what you know. And so for guys to not play is an extremely difficult process. And it's one where, you know, you get the voices of, all right, at that point, you've started talking to and probably figure out who your agent's going to be. Your family's involved in these decisions. There are the business applications that people start to get in your head with. And I always remind people, like, for the kid that's wearing the uniform, this is an extremely hard thought process of, pulling myself away from the game and from the team that I've given so much time to. And I just, I'm, I'm glad you bring this up because I think it's something people need to be reminded of and appreciate is like, nah, like the way these guys are wired, they want to be doing this. This is their natural yeah. state of being. Yeah. And, and if, and I kind of understand it if you don't, you know, I, I see both sides of the spectrum. I, I really do, man, because again, you have an opportunity to, to, to one, a lot of these guys that are playing are the first to do anything, right? They're the first to graduate. They're going to be the first one to have some sort of substantial income coming into the family. And if it jeopardizes that, then that's a tough call in itself, which is scary for me when you talk about the NIL and what's going to happen with that going forward. Um, just because, like, there's no – like, I don't know all the ramifications that are going to happen. I know that agents are already involved in this collegiate process. But now, you know, you leave them out in the open and they can just walk through those front doors. And I think it changes everything because now you got another set of counsel who, again, they say they're in your best interest. But in reality, they still get paid, too, on it, mm -hmm. you know. So it'll be it'll be interesting to, to really see how this whole thing shapes out going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest question that I have is how they're going to address that, because a lot of people and understandably so do not trust the NCAA. I would say that the only person, group of people I trust less as a whole are the majority of agents. Like when it comes to the NFL and the NBA, there are a very f small group of agents at the highest level that are very vetted and very trustworthy that control the bulk of guys. And then there's a lot of dudes operating on the periphery who are selling guys the dream and giving them bad yeah. advice. And it's my fear that those guys are going to start to dominate this fear if it's not careful. But that's, you know, that's the group licensing conversation. That's the NCAA hopefully doing its job and saying we're the existing infrastructure. We've already got compliance officers on the ground, people that are boots on the ground at these schools that should be able to help and control this process for the best interest of the kids that are actually playing. So that's that's my hope at least. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm like you. I'm sure you talk to, you know, former compliance officers and the people we were around, like there are so many tentacles to this that getting it right is going to be a difficult task. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for sure, man. And, uh, you know, we it's it's going to be very, very, very interesting going forward from a recruitment standpoint too when you talk about players able to get paid off of their likeness because now we're talking about marketing too, right? So you know as a player that certain markets are better than others. 
All right. One, if you're in the NFL, you don't want to get drafted to Jacksonville, right? It's just not a strong market for a particular player. There's not a lot of money there. Jacksonville's cool, but it's not, and I'll be honest, it's not Houston. All right. And it's, it's not, it's not Oakland and it's not, it's not even New England. You know, New England's a small market, but it's still, you got your big three, you got your, well, you got your big four, you got the hockey, the baseball, basketball, football. And for me, I'm like, well, what prevents a play, a coach from USC saying, well, why would you not come to Southern Cal? You know, be out here on the West Coast in Southern California, able to perform at a high level on the field and still be in front of the world from a Hollywood standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, from all of that. You know, I think that that changes everything because now we're talking about two things, at least in my opinion, right? It's do I want to go and continue to grow and transform as a human being and as a man going forward in life? Or do I want to be able to try to access as many dollars as I can at this particular point? And that is a, that's a scary thought going forward, too, because there's no sometimes we don't know the rhyme or reason. But once you start getting the parents involved in a particular process where funds are in order, you know, it changes everything from a from a mental capacity standpoint. Oh, yeah, that's it's because, a, a, I mean, you've seen this in the NFL. Like there are guys that get to there that, you know, we subdub grown men in their mid 20s that have to deal with the difficult fast task of telling their family no and now all of a sudden you're asking a 16 17 year old kid going through this process to maybe have those same tough conversations with the people that have been keeping the lights on for them for years now so uh, that is that is definitely difficult the the market thing is certainly an apt point like it's a it's going to be the difficult balance of what it's always been I think because we can't sit here and pretend that you know, you going to Clemson, me going to Notre Dame, guys that go to Ohio State, that you don't already get built-in advantages with being a high-profile player at those schools, that the exposure to the alumni base that's going to be talented, that's going to be deep and have you know connections that will help you both then and later on in life isn't already there. It just kind of takes on a bit of a different form where now instead of, all right, well, come here because we've got these otherworldly facilities and you're in Southern California to come here because we've got these otherworldly facilities, we're in Southern California, and you can make a fair amount of money being around the things that you want to do in here. But uh, you're right. One of the definite fears I have is how this affects what's already a complicated and fast-paced recruiting process for kids right now. Because even in the time since we've been away, like it has changed drastically for these kids. Oh, my gosh. I go look at a kid right now who's who's considering Clemson. I go to his Instagram. He got 245,000 followers already. They're verified now. Like all these kids are blue check marks in high school. And I'm like, I had to wait years into my like professional life to try and get one of those and now kids have but you, you're right like you have to be a brand now as a kid and you have to go like you know when we were when we were in high school you would go to these camps in the summer but now it's if you're not on the camp circuit you're not getting offered in that way it's just it's a completely different game that guys have to play now and it's part of me feels bad because you got to grow up quick yeah well and that was one of the things i was trying to explain when i was talking about trevor lawrence this season it's like okay obviously we know those guys are uber talented right but you then got Urban Meyer say that he's going to be the greatest college quarterback prospect in the history of football for forever. And you expect this guy to come out here and just have, act like that's not going to have any effect on, on, on his mental and the way he does out there in the football field. And I'm like, that's a big, big burden to carry. Now, whether he has counsel or not, like we don't know how he feels when he goes back to his dorm room at night. You know, that's a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation. And, you know, when you're carrying that chip and you come in preseason ranked number one, and they expect you to throw for 450 yards a game and six touchdowns. Sometimes you forget that the game is just a game, and it's the same game you've been playing since you were seven years old, and you try to do more than you have to. 
So that's what I've been more impressed with with him this season is how he's continued to combat that, how he's continued to improve his mental game week in and week out and start paying attention to the things that got him to that position as opposed to the things that could come later because of it. So there's just – I don't think people put into account what these kids are going through on their day-to-day basis coming from high school to college at this particular journey because – uh, if you if you want to really break it down, some of these kids are getting recruited at a high level in middle school to go to a particular high school. So it's it's I never thought it would get to this point, and it is chaotic all the way around. Dude, it, it's it's so spot on that you say that, and like I got that crystal clear reminder of just that, like how much is asked of kids, and like we were all legitimately kids, and these guys still are. Like I I had the good fortune this week, so this past weekend as we're recording this was the Heisman Trophy ceremony, and Friday night. They have a you know they have a dinner for the Heisman Trophy final. Were you a Heisman Trophy finalist? Am I forgetting this? No, I got my Heisman Trophy letter, um, but they only took three that year. So oh, okay, because I, I finished like fifth or something like that. Gotcha. I, it's got fin- finishing fifth in the Heisman. What a what a what a sad state of affairs. You absolute beast. That was uh no, obviously. I mean, hell, everyone everyone knows you were one of the most prolific quarterbacks in college football and in Clemson history. So I I, I assumed correctly that you'd be within shouting distance of that, but. For the for the Heisman ceremony this weekend, there were the four finalists that we know. And on Friday night, I didn't know this until this year. The Heisman Trust puts on a dinner that they give these kids plaques in honor of their status as a Heisman finalist. And there's you know Heisman winners, past and present, that are there. And so they had me come and just MC a small portion of that. And getting to meet all of these guys, you know, getting to meet Justin and Chase and Joe and and, and Jalen, you just see them and you're reminded, like, my God. These are college kids who all looked exhausted, looked like they were tired of being in rooms full of people, all trying to get a piece of them, and just wanted to go back and be around their teams. Like I I was talking to Joe Burrow and his family, and I looked at Joe, and he looked exhausted, and I said, how ready are you just to get back to practice and get back to your team? And he goes, you have no idea. Like the kid who was all everything this year, who was getting all the awards that we all, you know, in some way, shape, or form desire as competitors – all he wanted to do was be back doing the thing that he had done all season. And so just seeing that was such a great reminder, like, man, these, these are all kids that love playing a game that have to try and do their best to navigate the rest of this sometimes on the fly. Like Joe Burrow at the start of this year, probably didn't think that this was a a true real possibility, but you know, what a difference a year makes for him for Kyler Murray last year. Like it's insane how quickly this can get thrust on you. Man, and Joe Burrow uh, is legitimately one of my favorite football players ever, man. And people ask me all the time, like, before Tua and injury and all of that, they was like, well, who would you take first? Would you take Joe or would you take Tua? Like, I'm going with Joe. And it was like, that doesn't make sense. Why would you say that? And look, man, I mean, where I grew up at, man, like, quarterback was almost like damn linebacker. You know, we want to go and run through somebody. I mean, Cam Chancellor grew up right down the street from me. He played quarterback in high school. You know, and obviously we know what he turned into when he was with Seattle and Virginia Tech. But, you know, it's just a different mentality. So when I see Joe throwing his body on the line and it's third and three, he's not going to step out of bounds. Like, I love that because I know he's willing to die on that football field. And as an old lineman, I know you love that because you know your guy's willing to sacrifice. If you know he's going to do that, then what will you do for him? So from that competitive nature standpoint, the way he plays the game, the edge, his his professionalism, I was like, man, this guy has has everything it takes to succeed at this level, obviously, but at the next level as well. It, it, it is. It, and by all accounts, you know, we talk to Marcus Spears pretty regularly on our show. Ryan Clark, both proud LSU alums that work for us at ESPN. And 
Everyone you talk to that's around that team behind the scenes says everything you think about Joe Burrow and all the stories that you hear secondhand are all true and then some. Like Marcus put it best. He goes, that locker room going into every game says we have a chance because we got nine in the backfield. Like they roll in with confidence because he allows them to have it because of the way he plays that game. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Man, I love that right there. Because who did you had? You had Golson, I think, towards the end of it. But who'd you have when you first started off? So when I first got to Notre Dame, uh, Jimmy Clausen was finishing up. He was the quarterback there my freshman and sophomore year. And then Dane Christ, who was one of my classmates, was our quarterback off and on for the next couple of years. Uh, Injury sidelined him. So Tommy Reese got a lot of reps in those times and was our starter for a point in there. He started for the uh, year after. uh, You know, he started in relief for some games whenever it was uh, dinged up or at the end of games for us. So I had all of those guys in the mix for it. All great dudes, all very different quarterbacks in their own rights, but uh, a lot of guys that you really enjoyed going out there and going to bat with. Yeah, me and Jimmy played in this uh, this thing last year, the American Flag Football League, and it was like this whole 707 circuit with like former pros. So me and Jimmy quarterbacked the team together, and we had uh, like Nate – Nate Robinson and Matt Barnes and Carlos Boozer. Carlos Boozer got the worst knees in America, dog. He went up for a fade. Oh, came no. Out of freaking, I know. I know. I feel bad talking about it like that. But uh, me and Jimmy, like, I don't play flag football, bro. And I, and I know that it's taken – I guess taken serious by a lot of these guys out here who are technically amateurs but in reality are pros in that sport. And me and Jimmy, we don't really craft like we need to, you know. So we get there two days before we got to play, and we just start drawing up plays. Well, all of our plays were pretty slow developing. I mean, scissor concepts, you know, deep daggers. And we didn't realize, like, that the team we were playing against were all track guys, all, like, Olympics. So, Jeremy Warner, it was Michael Johnson's team, oh. and Seneca Wallace, the quarterback. So, you know, we're dropping back. I mean, I'm kind of out of shape at this point. So, they're counting two seconds. They're sprinting. I'm just throwing the ball up. It didn't even make sense. So, me and Jimmy were like, what are we doing, bro? We don't even know how to play this game. <laughs> it is so what comes. I had thrown two picks. Jimmy throwing two picks. Third quarter rolls around. He's like, hey, I'm done. You just take it for the rest of the game. I'm like, oh, my gosh, bro. So ah. <laughs> It is always interesting, man. Like, once you once you get past, like, ball when you are in that mode and doing it all the time and you deal with people, like you said, you know, flag football, when done the way it is at high level, might as well be a different sport because there's just different elements to it. Like, when you encounter people that have been putting all their time into something, it kind of reminds you that, like, Man, I like I always tell people this relative to like the sport of golf. I know I had to put my 10,000 hours in and then some to be like a slightly above average college offensive lineman. I have not put a, a hundredth, a thousandth of that time into golf. So why would I expect to go out there and be better than I am right now? Like it's a reminder of like just how much time you got to put into something to be as good at it as we as competitors want to be. That's so funny. <laughs> Because I step out on the greens, man, and, like, the expectation is, like, you know, Taj is about to drop a bomb 320 yards right down the middle, and everything looks good. The, the gear, the clubs, and then you see that bag swing, and you're like, holy hell, this guy's a terrible golfer. You, know? <laughs> you look the part, though, and that's important. You gain. And it's so funny, man, because, like, as you mature, you start gaining an appreciation for all of this stuff. Like, uh, you know, NASCAR on TV, I'm like, this is the most damn boring thing you could ever watch. And then I did that whole Richard Petty experience. And thought I was going to crap my pants. And I was like, well, you know. So you look at it from a different vanity point, man. It's it's funny, man. I'll tell you what. I tried to play soccer one time. And, oh. You know, parents in football talking about their kids getting CT. I'm like, have you ever tried to hit a header in? 
Oh my god. Yeah, it's the it's the running. And I know you don't like the. I know you said you got to get forced to get in that treadmill. And soccer just it's way too much. Man, I was the all time goal. So we played like soccer when I was a kid. When we would, we moved around a fair amount. And my dad was first starting off in sports media and stuff like that. And so we were you know playing sports in a lot of instances to make friends wherever we had just moved. And soccer was one of those at certain times. And Man, I'll be damned if I wasn't the automatic all-time goalie for every instance of my soccer playing career, as short-lived as it was. <laughs> oh, that's so funny, man! I tell you what, did you? Uh, I mean, I guess going forward, like you know, do you give a lot of uh, speeches and keynotes to high schools and colleges now? You know about your experience? Um, um not not. All too often, formally, I had the chance recently. ESPN does a uh, has a great partnership with uh, Special Olympics and Unified Sports, and so they do a lot of these. Uh, they're called banner presentations to honor schools that have met certain criteria in the way that they incorporate Unified Sports and Special Olympics into their schools, you know, culture and their their curriculum and all these different ways. And so I got to go and talk to a uh, school in in uh, Louisville, and had a chance after to speak to, you know, their football and baseball team and do stuff like that. And so I was reminded, reminded what a cool deal is, but I know you do a fair amount of that, right? You go out and, 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 and get to talk to a fair amount of groups at this point, right? I mean, I've been trying to, you know, trying to impart some wisdom and some knowledge on them, you know, but it, most of you know, I try to take the real life experiences that we had really relay that back to them and stress the importance of time. You know, uh, one of the things that, that, you know, we mentioned a little bit earlier was these players who aren't, they aren't playing, you know, or, or they opt out of the bowl games. And I'm like, man, like what you don't realize is that you don't get that time back at all. You know, when I go speak to high schools, every senior in the world thinks that they don't have any time left. And it's because they don't, they ran out. Every freshman thinks they have all the time. So you got this polar opposite mental approach, right? You got guys who know that there's nothing left. You got guys who think they got all the time and they got those sophomores and juniors that are in the middle. But if they realize that if they can just maximize that time and really break it down into summers, because I do, you know, I don't think you you get better during the season. I think you get better in the off season. Yep. Some of these kids, like they're like, I'm, I just you know focus on it when it gets here. I'm like, well, you don't have that time anymore. You got six summers left when you're in seventh grade. Then you got five, and then you got four, and then you don't have any. And it's like, wow, all I had to do was maximize that time. And you mentioned earlier the Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hour rule. And that is an impressive thing. Like it's it's a real thing, and it's just the art of mastery. So if you can sit there and focus and master your craft, man, you can do wonders with it on the field and off the field, man. Just your approach and your day to day. So yeah, well, and I mean, you you going out and telling people that is important because the one thing I I, I took for granted for a long time, and then realized as I started getting older was I had the good fortune of seeing someone every day when I woke up and ate breakfast and came home and ate dinner that did all of the things that I wanted to do at the levels that I wanted to do them and could show me how along the way. Like my dad was a captain at Notre Dame, played nine years in the NFL and went into broadcasting. And all I wanted to be as a kid growing up and and still now is all I wanted to do was be my dad and do those same things. And so I had someone who not only could show me how to do all those, but just by nature of being alive and doing what he did every day, I saw it was possible. Like it never seemed out of the realm of possibility. And that's why now when when we hear the conversations about representation and seeing women and seeing minorities in positions where other people, especially kids, can see them, I – 
while I can't empathize directly with that position, I understand what representation can do from that standpoint because I had the person I wanted to be doing it in front of me every day and what that did for me mentally made such a huge difference. And so just having that, and that's why whenever I get to talk to kids, I always say, find a person, whether it's a coach, whether it's a mentor, whether it's another person on your team that's doing it at a high level and follow them around and meticulously try and copy what they're doing and ask as many questions as you can, because we don't know how to do this stuff intrinsically. We've got to learn it from somebody. And so finding that person that can show you the right work habits that you know is doing things the right way on and off the field is huge. Oh, man, you're absolutely correct on that, you know, because it's it's a shared experience at that point. And, you know, when it's all said and done, all all we're going to have are the things that, that we left back or the things that we gave back. And a lot of that can happen just with a simple conversation or just knowing like I know that I'm a, I'm a direct product of the environment that I grew up in. And I mean, I tell people all the time I would go to the gas station or 7-Eleven and see Bruce Smith at the gas station, see Allen Iverson, see Ronald Curry. And as a kid or Alonzo Mourning, you know, and, and you see him and it's like, well. Why could I not be that? It's not like I don't see it and know that it's possible. I just got to put the work in and figure out which path I need to stay on. And uh, it's it's important and it's vital that you're doing that too, man. So that's pretty special. No, absolutely. It's it, it in every sense, like in life and otherwise, it is. It's it, it's extremely important because I I don't know, like I'm sure you saw some of the stuff today coming up. Josh Gordon getting suspended again, and it just it breaks your heart to see people, you know, football or otherwise, that miss out on opportunities because very few people cared enough to show them the right way to do things. They just allowed them to do the convenient thing because of how talented they are, because of what they might allow someone else to do. Like to have someone with your best interest in mind is a pretty special thing. And I hope more people can find that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to, I guess I want to tap into this real quick. Cause you watched a lot of Ohio state this year. Um, is this going to be the most competitive playoff game that we see? Uh, I think of the four, absolutely. I, all right, of, excuse me, of the two, I think that will be by far the Fiesta Bowl, the more competitive game. I mean, I think they're the two most complete teams or have been all season long. I think LSU's defense has gotten better and healthier as of late, but Ohio State and Clemson, statistically, when you turn on the tape, however you want to cut it, have definitely been the two most consistent on both sides of the ball. Yeah, I believe so too. I just think they're the most balanced teams across the board. They match up really well, man, so I can't call it one way or another. You know, I know that most people expect me just to be a homer, but I still like good football too. So I'm going to try to get I'm gonna try to try get Beanie Wells or Troy Smith or Lauren Addis on the pod too, talking about it a little bit in that culture because I was almost a Buckeye too. I um, played in the Army game, met some guys down there, uh, Dorian Bell and, and Corey Smith and Jamie Wood, and I was like, I'm a Buckeye, you know. And uh, I obviously ended up steering – steering the lane a little bit and, and went to Clemson, but pretty special program. And they got a really good thing going. Love what Ryan Day has been able to do over there at Ohio State too. Um, but we'll see if if Justin Fields is up to the task. And we'll see if our secondary is up to the task over here at Clemson. So should be a, should be a matchup, man, that I'm excited to, to see and, and know. And hopefully I get a chance to go down there and talk ball about it a little bit too. Um, are you guys going to hit the circuit a little bit? You going to Atlanta? You going to Phoenix? Are you going to the national championship game too? Yeah, I will we'll actually. We'll be out at. Uh, so I know uh, me and Jason are going to be out in uh, in in Arizona for the uh, Ohio State Clemson game that we were just talking about there. So we'll be out there for that one. We'll be down uh, in New Orleans for the national championship there. So looking forward to it, man. I mean, you know this. We had a chance to, like you said, chop it up in Santa Clara last year, 
and do all that. But getting to be around these games, especially towards the end, like I, it didn't go the way that we wanted to when we played in it, but I got a chance to play in a BCS title and it's still one of the coolest seasonal experiences and being a part of that game because there's two teams that do it every year. And so to get to be around the kids going through that right now is, is probably one of the most gratifying parts of the job is just getting to be close to, to those big time games at the end of the year, because, you know, we both know how much work these kids have put into this situation. And so to see the fruits of that labor is pretty special. Absolutely. Well, look, man, uh, I always try to end like this One, I get your social media handle uh, so that people can follow, but I'll tell you what, throughout the course of your life, your journey, you know, your very young life, let's say that, because I feel old some days and I just look at it and I'm like, we're not old at all. (laughs) (laughs) Is there some sort of, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, you got any philosophy, some, some mental age that you take with you before you go on set, you know, how you walk through your life? Is there some sort of philosophy that you live by? Yeah. So it was interesting. One of the things I did this last year, because I was never big and through all my life, I never, I felt like I didn't write stuff down enough. And I know people talk about there being power and writing down goals. And so last year, as, as corny as a lot of people think of it, I took the new year as kind of a reset. And I, I wrote down some things on a piece of paper that I wanted to be better about going into the new year. And the one thing that I kept coming back on was one thing that Uh, Paul Longo, who was our strength coach at Notre Dame when I was there, when Brian Kelly got to school, was take care of the people that take care of you. And at Mm -hmm. that point, it was, you know, looking out for our teammates, making sure guys are doing the right things. But as I've gotten older and as we've you know started to go off again into our young lives, but like I I got a lot of really close friends that are, you know, my brother's married now, but I got a lot of other close friends that are in addition to husbands are becoming fathers and, and becoming mothers. And so to see all of them and their kids, I realized I want to make sure that I'm still present in the lives of the people that have taken enough of an interest in me to be in mine. And so trying to take care of the people that take care of me, be there for special occasions for kids, be there to celebrate my friends' accomplishments and do all that stuff. And and that was one thing, at least for the past year, that I've really been trying to wake up and be conscious of, of all right, like, how do I make sure I'm taking care of my family and the people that are, are close to us as best I can? Oh, man, that's special right there. And that's just a reminder for all of us on our day-to-day, man. So, Mike, uh, always, man, I've always enjoyed having a conversation with you, man. I appreciate you jumping on the pod today. Um, You know, I know how to get a hold of you on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, What is your handle for the people that are listening? Yeah, no, uh, at at MGolikJr57 on uh, both Instagram and Twitter. So uh, you'll get a lot of pictures of pugs. And unfortunately, every Monday for a couple of months, a lot of tweets about the Bachelor or Bachelorette. But the rest of it's all pretty good. (laughs) I love that so much, man. So funny, dog. But look, I appreciate you, man. Uh, Look forward to catching up with you soon. And hopefully they find a spot for you somewhere in Bristol, you know. We'll see how that plays out. Absolutely, but, uh, man. I'm, I'm going to keep telling them what's up, man. But we'll see you out in Phoenix, and I'm sure we'll be trying to get some of your time out there. So appreciate you having me, man. Appreciate you, bro. Thank you so much. All right, you heard it there, folks. Mike Golick Jr., enjoy your day. Be great.